a minister, a boy scout, and a computer executive were flying to a meeting in a small private plane. About halfway to their destination, the pilot came back and announced that the plane was going to crash and that the bad news is, even worse, there were only three parachutes and four people. So the pilot said, well, you know what, I'm going to use one of the parachutes because I have a wife and four small children, and before they could debate it, he was already gone out the door. The computer executive said, well, you know what, I should have one of the parachutes because I'm the smartest man in the world, and this world will not survive without me, and he jumped out the door. So the minister turned to the Boy Scout and smiled and said, well, you know what, young man, I've lived a long and good life, and I'm looking forward to being with, with my Lord and Savior. So you go ahead and take the last parachute, and I'll go ahead and go down with the plane. The Boy Scout looked up at him and smiled and said, Hey, Reverend, relax. The world's smartest man just strapped my backpack on his back and jumped out the plane. <laughs> Speaking of famous last words... We're in the midst of a series of messages that focus on the inspired deathbed insights of the Apostle Paul. Thus far, he shared with us through his direct counsel to his child in the faith, Timothy, the virtues and the motivations needed to finish strong and the importance of not being ashamed of sharing the gospel despite increased opposition and the resulting persecution. In fact, the entire context of 2 Timothy is to warn Christians concerning the problem of persecution arising from evangelism. For those who may not be familiar with the term, evangelism simply means to be a messenger of the good news that there is salvation through Jesus Christ and Him alone, that redemption is found in Him, that our relationship with God can be restored through a personal relationship through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as that message is shared, there will be increased persecution and opposition. You know, it was, Paul, it was through Paul's boldness that many Christians derived courage to share their faith and were willing to be faithful even though, even through the toughest of times. And in fact, an example of that in Philippians chapter 1 is in Philippians 1 verse 13. Well, it says in fact, it says in verse 12, he says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, being in prison have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He says, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ, the reason he was thrown in jail simply was because it was God's will. As a result of him telling people that salvation is found in Christ, there were those who didn't like that message, didn't want to hear it, and threw him in prison. So his imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Everyone in the Roman Empire got to hear of salvation through Christ because of the imprisonment of the Apostle Paul. The guards, as I've mentioned many times, were chained to him on four, six-hour shifts, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He, he shared the gospel with them. They would in turn go back and tell others what he talks about with them all during the course of their time together. He says, and the, that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord, you know that this is God's plan, that oftentimes in life, God's plan is that you and I suffer persecution for the cause of the gospel. That's part of God's plan in reaching others with the good news of salvation in Christ. He says, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. You know, it's okay that we suffer for Christ's sake. And in many cases, it's, our, it's appointed to us. It's destined by God. It's God's will for us that we suffer for the cause of Christ. You know, he has told Timothy to endure this temporary suffering and hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, 
never losing sight of the bigger picture, which is the whole purpose of our time here on earth. You know, I often talk to people, and you've got to ask the question, what do you think the purpose is of your time here on earth? I spoke at a memorial service for a friend's father on Friday. And, you know, and they do like a nine or ten minute video of a person's life. And it showed, you know, it showed him flying, you know, he was in 32 years in the military. He was an ace fighter pilot. You know, he flew many military expeditions and missions. And, you know, and you get this overview of a person's life. But, you know, in nine, ten, eleven minutes, it's kind of summarized. Here's an overview of this person's life. You know, in the card that they give me at the, you know, at the funeral home. Here's when he died. Here's when he was born and where he was born. Here's when he died and, and where he died. And, you know, but in between, it's the in-between that matters. And God says the in-between time. We are to redeem this time wisely, knowing that the days are evil. It's in that in-between time that God wants every person to come into a personal relationship with the God who has created us through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what this in-between time is all about. And once we have come into a relationship with God through Christ, then we're to be used by God to reach others with the same message that this time that we have should be redeemed wisely to come into a relationship with our Creator. You see, the big picture you know, outweighs the temporary uh, affliction that we go through. As he mentioned even to the Romans when he said, I don't even consider it worthy to compare the temporary sufferings of this life to the eternal glory that will be revealed one day to us. And so when we look at this contrast, he provided examples that show that faithfulness is part of the job. Now he moves on to tell Timothy what it takes to be a good and faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We'll take a look at this account starting in verse 14. As he gives some more inspired deathbed insight as to the purpose of life in this particular case for those who have come to a relationship with the God who created them. In verse 14, he writes these words, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His." And let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness and faith, love and peace with those who call on the Lord from pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. In this passage, Paul shares three things that will be true of all good and faithful servants 
the first thing that he wants us to know and understand is that he tells us that a good and faithful servant will be a person who is reminded of certain things. A good and faithful servant, number one, shares a correct message. Shares a correct message. You know, nobody witnesses effectively without the correct message. You know, the question is, what is the message that God wants this world to know? What is the message that God wants you and I to share with the people that God brings into our life? What is that specific message? For those who have come to recognize that what God says about us is true, that all of us are sinners, that none of us are righteous, we all fall short of God's perfect standard. For those who have come to recognize that and have come to repent, which simply means to turn from living a life that is an alienation or rebellion against God and turn to God, throw ourselves upon his mercy for the forgiveness of our sins, responding with faith to the finished work of Christ that he died on the cross in my place, your place for all who believe, that he rose again three days later from the dead, affirming that he is who he claimed to be, God in human flesh, the only Savior of the world, and receiving him as our Lord and Savior. The Bible says for those who receive him, we, come, we, be, we, we have the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. The Bible clearly teaches at that point that you and I have a responsibility to share this message with those God brings into our life. But we need to recognize and understand that the message is not optional that we are to share, but it's a command. We are to be his witnesses. We are to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We're to be his witnesses, as, as we see in Acts 1.8, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the outermost parts of the earth, which includes where you and I live today. We're to be witnesses of God's love, his faithfulness, his grace, and his mercy, and his desire that all people would enter into a relationship with God through faith in Christ. And it's God's desire that no one would perish that all come to everlasting life through Christ. That's the message that we are to share, and, and it's not an optional message, it's a command. If you'll notice in verse 14, the words remind them, and he goes on and says, and solemnly charge them. Both of these are imperatives in the order of, if you look back at verse 1, notice what he says. He said, be strong. It's an imperative. It's not an option. Be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. In verse 2, he says, entrust to. That's an imperative. In verse uh, 7, he says, consider. If you remember, it's a command saying to take into, take into consideration, take a good hard look at the evidence for the purpose of coming to some conclusions. Consider Jesus, the book of Hebrews says. Take a good hard look at the life of Jesus Christ. Consider who he claimed to be. Consider the things that he'd done. Consider his, consider his resurrection from the dead. Consider the millions of people who have put their faith and trust in him as their savior. Consider the change of their life. Consider the transformation that has taken place. Consider they're not who they used to be and now they're somebody new. How did all this happen? Consider it for the purpose of coming to some conclusions about these claims to take action one way or the other. To either believe it because the evidence is overwhelming, or to reject it because you've got evidence that is greater than the evidence that you just considered. But consider it for the purpose of coming to some conclusion. It's an imperative. It's a command. It's not optional. In verse 14, it's the same thing. Remind and solemnly charge. It's a command. It's an imperative. In verse 15, be diligent. We'll talk about that. In verse 16, avoid. We'll talk about that. Verse 19, abstain. We'll talk again about that. These are all imperatives. And in the Greek text, 
text, in the tense that we see, it's a present tense reminding people on a continual basis. It carries with it the idea of persistence. We are to remind, be reminded and remind others on a continual basis of these things. What are these things? That's what we're going to talk about. And so when we look at this, we're to remind them of what? Number one, not to wrangle. Notice this. Not to wrangle about words. Not to wrangle about words. The word wrangle means basically not to come into a war of words. In a war of words. In this instance, with false teachers who would teach something contrary to the truth of what God teaches. Because the Bible says that these people are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 3, verse 7. See, such deceivers use human wisdom and reason to undermine God's word. And believers are not to debate with them, especially those who are within the church who are teaching something that's contrary. You know, even from a human perspective, I want you to stop and think about something. Even from a human perspective, if you think about it, it's obvious that no debate can be carried on effectively if you've got two people who have opposing views. If they cannot agree, and you know, if you, if you ever see like uh, presidential debates or political debates, there are always things that they agree upon as far as what the, the platform will be, or what the subjects will be, or the topics will be, uh, you know, what the format is, you know, three minutes for this and one minute re- for rebuttal, three minutes to answer and then one minute to rebuttal. There are always ground rules for debate so that there can be a constructive debate as to what the issues are. And there's nothing worse than when somebody asks somebody a specific question and then they take that question, never answer the question, and they introduce something else that they want to talk about or they begin to tour the universe. And it's like, but wait a minute. But the question was, will you raise taxes or not? Well, I'm glad that you asked about, you know, import-exports. It's like, what? No one asked that. But but that's the way it works, you know. And so it's kind of like immediately get sidetracked or begin to wrangle about certain words. Here's the bottom line. Unbelievers put no stock in the divine authority of God's word. Unbelievers put no value upon the divine authority in God's word. If you've ever noticed when you're sharing with another person and you say, but the Bible says, and then you begin to share, and they say, you know what? I don't care what the Bible says. I don't believe the Bible is what you believe it is, the inspired written word of God, the authoritative word of God without error whatsoever. It's God's word in written form for all of mankind. I don't believe that. And what gets really interesting is when you find people who claim to believe that, but then what they've added to it is more important than what they claim that they believe as far as the Bible is concerned. And so what happens is this, no matter how biblically sound arguments may be in themselves, Christians who debate with unbelievers inadvertently allow Scripture to be brought down to the level of human wisdom. When you debate with an unbeliever who doesn't believe the authority and inerrancy of the Word of God, you bring the Word of God down to their human level of wisdom, reasoning, and understanding. And we lower the standard of the Word of God when we do so. 
to discuss interpretations, it's important that we realize to discuss interpretations of Scripture and doctrine with other believers who recognize the Word of God as the inerrant Word of God with all authority, you know, that's a good thing. It's a sound thing. We need to be digging into Scripture. We'll talk about that in a second. Sometimes there's going to be disagreement, but it's going to be disagreement based on, well, you know what, as I dig into Scripture and, and we look at the cultural context and we look at the words and we understand the meaning of those words in, a, in the context in which they were used, we understand the passage, we understand, I mean, we, we struggle sometimes with things and you know what and godly people can disagree with certain interpretations of scripture and that's why there's so many denominational churches because of those differences but that's different in acts chapter 15 they debated you know scripture and doctrine and they were trying to come up with an understanding and that's different than debating and arguing with the person who doesn't even recognize that the bible is the word of god give an example if you've ever had somebody come knocking at your door White shirt, long ties, bike parked out front. <laughs> if you've ever had someone come, some, you know, someone in maybe that, that manner or similar to that, and they come knocking at the door and they want to share with you what you should believe, the message they believe that God wants them to share with the world. When folks like that have come knocking at my door, I've always asked this very simple question. If I can show you from the Bible what you say you believe is not true, are you willing to change your belief? That's all. If I can show you from the Bible what you just told me contradicts what the Bible teaches, are you willing to change what you believe? And if they say no, then I say, have a nice day. Because there is nothing for us to discuss. If you're really seeking and searching truth, and you believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, the complete authority, the final authority for all issues regarding God as far as man is concerned, then I'll be happy to share this with you and let's talk about it together and let's see what the Bible says. And they say, no, there's no sense discussing it any further because they're not interested in seeking truth. Or they say, oh, I believe the Bible is, oh yeah, it's the word of God. Oh, but I just want to tell you that we've got further revelation from God. And then it becomes very simple and say, wait a minute, now what did God miss in the Bible that he added later on? Let's see, the book of Genesis is the book of beginning. The book of Revelation tells everything that will happen in the future and everything in between is pretty much covered. And the, book, the last thing that's written in the word of God is that anybody adds to or takes away from the book of this law, uh, the, book, the, the words of God will be cursed by God. Now, what exactly did he miss? And I'll guarantee you, there's no answer for that. They go, then they say to you, have a nice day. And then they go to bother your neighbor who doesn't have a clue what's going on sometimes. You know, and, and so the, Paul's point is this. Continually remind believers of the futility of non-biblical discussions. You know, think about how oftentimes we start out with the correct message. We start out sharing that, you know what, we're all sinners, that we're all separated from God. We all fall short. None of us are perfect. Are you perfect? All you got to do is ask somebody, hey, are you perfect? No, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. Now, you know what, God's standards perfection. And no matter how good you think you are, you fall short of that perfection. And then you can share with them, have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? Have you ever stolen? Have you always honored God, kept him first in your life? Have you always honored your mother and father? Well, no, not all the time, but I do the best I can. Oh, what did you say? Not all the time. Guilty, busted, hey. Exactly what God's trying to tell you. So we start out there and we say, hey, you know what? And, and, and God is going to punish sin and sinners as a result. And that you're on the road to eternal destruction. You got a problem. I got a problem. But you know what? 
the wages of sin is death. The reason we all die. Every funeral I speak at, I say, listen, have you ever stopped to think why everybody dies? And it's not because they had cancer, and it's not because they had a heart attack, and it's not because they had old age or natural. Think of this one. I love this one. This is the best of all. When you read in the paper, he died of natural causes. You know what a natural cause is? Sin. That's what it is. They should just put, he died as a result of sin. And then I go, ooh, what did he do? He was just born into the world, separated from God, conceived in his mother's womb in iniquity. He came into the world, stained and marked by sin. Just like everybody else did. Died of natural causes, died of sin. The wages of sin is death. That sucks. That's a Greek term, by the way. <laughs> Meaning could go like, something like that. But anyway, and it's just bad news. But the good news is, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. See, isn't that awesome? And see, we start out sharing that message, and as we're sharing that message, here's what happens to us. Well, well, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. What about those people in Africa that never hear this? What's God going to do to them? And I said, man, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm amazed how concerned you are about people in Africa when you're not even concerned that you yourself are on your way to hell. That is really generous of you to be so considerate of other people. But, you know, it's like, and so and my point is this. I say, listen, you know what? We'll talk about them in a minute. I want to talk about you. What about you? You're so concerned about people who have never heard, and you haven't heard till now. Let's talk about you. See, it's always that sidetrack thing. And so what, what the point of this passage is very simple. It's like, wait a minute, don't get sidetracked and tour the universe with people. Bring them back to the central focus of the message of God. And the message of God is very simple. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. We answer the questions that are asked of us as quickly as possible and then get back to the central issue which is Jesus and Him crucified. See, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1 for clarity on that. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, as we take a look at the clarity of what God's trying to get across to the world in which we live. Hebrews 1, verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. In the Greek text, it just says, in Son. The emphasis on everything God wants the world to know is in Jesus. Everything He spoke of through the prophets in many portions and in many ways pointed the world forward to the day that God would send the Savior of the world into this world to die upon a cross and take upon the sins of man, sufficient for all, applicable only to those who believe, and that he would be raised up again three days later. Everything in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, everything that we see, the prophecies, the predictive prophecies, everything that God had told man pointed forward to the day that the Savior would come and shines a spotlight on the life of Jesus Christ. He is everything God had promised to man. 
In Him, nothing's missing. In what He's accomplished, it is finished. He said on the cross, there's nothing to add to it. Can't take away anything from it. It's all about Jesus. He spoke to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. The creator of the universe is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the Bible clearly says, and in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God spoke. And then everything came into existence. And yet the Bible teaches in John chapter 1 and in Hebrews chapter 1 that it was Jesus Christ who created the universe. And the reason that the Bible says Jesus created the universe is because Jesus Christ is God in human flesh taking on the appearance and the likeness of a man so that he can come and accomplish the purpose of the Father who sent him to die upon the cross, to seek and to save that which was lost, which is all of us, every one of us, every last one of us. He came to seek us out. See, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he made purification of sins, when did he do that? When he accomplished the work that he came to do on the cross, he made purification of sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than them. The world that we live in says, hey, you know what? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe in his resurrection and I believe in his death. Okay, do you believe that he's God? Well, I believe he's a God, one of many gods. You and I can become a God if we just do the things that we're supposed to do. Click off the checklist. That is not what the Bible teaches. I believe he's an angel. He's the archangel. That is not what the Bible teaches. He is God in human flesh. He is the creator of the universe. And the attributes that are given to Jesus Christ are the same attributes that are shared with us as far as God the Father is concerned. And Jesus unequivocally said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for I and the Father am one. We need to be able to define the terms when we discuss this with other people. And all we hear sometimes is, oh, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe that he rose from the dead. Hey, the devil believes that and the demons and they shudder at the thought of it. We need to be able to isolate and identify what exactly it is that you believe and when did you believe it? What is it that you believe? So when we look at this, and this is why I'm saying, you know what, don't wrangle about these words. The message is Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, one God, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death upon the cross was raised up from the dead and is seated and exalted at the right hand of God. And the Bible says that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow one day and every, every tongue will confess that He's Lord to the glory of God. Some, the very last thing that they do before they're separated from God for all of eternity in a place that was created for the devil and his demons and not any human being, but unfortunately that, they're, they're, that will be the destiny of many who reject the plan of God to save them from their sins. See, we're to be reminded continually, don't get off the subject. Don't get off the focal point of Jesus Christ. Who do you say that I am is what Jesus said to Peter. He said the same thing to Martha at the, at the tomb of Lazarus. You know, do you believe this? I have believed that you're the Christ, the Savior of the world, the one who has been promised by God through all of the Old Testament. You are the one we've been looking for. At the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he said the same thing. She said, I know that one day God will send the Savior into the world. And he said to her, I am He. The one you speak to today is He. I am the Savior of the world. Make no mistake about it. For those who say, Jesus never claimed that. Well, you know what? Go and read the Bible because He certainly did. But what we'll find is, is that they don't use the Bible as their final authority for decisions in life. And we do. 
So don't even wrangle with them. Don't get caught up in a war of words with them. It doesn't really matter. Come to the conclusion, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God inerrant or do you not? Inspired, authoritative, or do you not? Because if you do not, I have really nothing to share with you because you know what? Everything I believe is found in the Word of God. Everything. The same God who promises me heaven because I've trusted in Christ promises those who reject Him hell. I mean, everything's there. What do you believe? And why? At least I know why I believe the Bible. The second thing is, it requires diligence or a diligent study. Notice that, going back to 2 Timothy, he says, remind them of these things. Continually remind them, solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to get in a war of words. Don't wrangle about words. Don't get into meaningless conversations. Hey, stay focused on Jesus and Him crucified on His life, His virgin birth, His perfect life, His substitutionary death on the cross, you know, the resurrection. Focus on all of that. Who do you say Jesus is? That's what it's all about. He says, and and don't wrangle about words which is useless. Notice that. It's useless. You know, arguing about anything else is useless. And it leads men to ruin. Why? Because you know what? Only a relationship through faith in Christ can save a person from the condemnation and the wrath of God. Everything else is useless and also leads people to further ruin because that's the path that they're on. He goes on and says, which is useless and leads to the ruin of hearers. Now he says, remember, it's a command. Be diligent. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. It requires diligence. How can you have these conversations with people if you don't know what the Bible teaches? And it is not a matter of, well, you're a teacher or you're a pastor, you get paid to do that, you study it, and then you just kind of give us the crib notes on it. Say, listen, we are all called to be witnesses, therefore we are all called to be diligent students of the Word of God. We are to study the Bible so we know what we believe and why we believe it. You can't share with others if you don't know what you believe. You know, think about it. What's the one thing that holds people back from sharing the gospel with other people? Fear. Fear of what? Fear of being asked a question you don't have an answer for. Fear of sounding stupid. And you know what? And most of us, we have a right to be fearful. I mean, I've, I've heard it. I've seen it. Even be, you know, before I came to faith in Christ, I would ask people questions that were trying to tell me why I should believe in Jesus. And I'd ask them reasons why this, that, or the other thing. And they'd look at me like that you know, genius look that you get and you go, I don't know. What? Well, then it's really hard to convince me of your argument when you don't know what it is. I don't want to talk about taxes. I don't know anything about it. Let's talk about, I don't know, import-exports. No, let's talk about foreign affairs. Let's talk about something I know something about because you asked me a question on something I haven't a clue. Now, that would be refreshing, but I'm not sure how many votes somebody would rack up for that. You know, after a period of time, you go, I don't think I'm going to vote for this guy. He didn't know anything. Honest, love that. Stupid, can't vote for that. You know what I'm saying? So it's kind of like, oh, what's the number one reason? Well, we don't know. So, you know, the only way that we'll know is that we've got to be diligent students of the Word of God. Diligence carries the idea of having a zealous persistence to accomplish a particular objective. I like that. Be diligent. In the context, Paul is telling Timothy to be a zealous teacher of God's truth. A diligent teacher or a diligent student of the Word of God gives maximum effort to impart God's truth as completely, as clearly, as unambiguously as possible, an unreserved commitment to excellence in examining, interpreting, 
explaining and applying God's word. I would just like to issue a warning that Paul has issued to Timothy, that Timothy is to issue a warning to all believers that he was responsible for their care, and that is this. There is something seriously wrong. There is something seriously wrong when a pastor, an elder, a teacher does not give maximum effort, is not zealous or enthusiastic to impart God's truth as completely as concisely and as unambiguously as possible. What unambiguous means this, that when a person hears the Word of God explained to them, that they have a very clear understanding of what was just said, and they don't leave there and walk away saying, what did he say? What what was that? I, I don't understand that. You know, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with a person who is not as clear as possible. There is something wrong with when we do not have application given for now. What do I do with this? Because the word of God says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Every person here, as they hear what's explained today, should walk away convicted, those who are believers, by the spirit of God living within us as to what action steps we should now take as to what we just heard. And I should, if I'm a teacher who is zealous and diligent, should be able to cross over what we learn in print and put it into real life as to how to put it into action. There's something wrong when that doesn't happen, and my counsel to you is the counsel of the Word of God. Seek out teachers who will do those things. Period. Because anything else just leads to the ruin of hearers. Anything else just adds to further destruction. Anything else just causes further confusion. You need to know, and I need to know, hey, what do I do with what I just learned? I'll give you an example of how the Word of God works. The Word of God that's living and powerful, active and sharper than any two-edged sword. How God's Word penetrates the hearts. Last Sunday before our, uh, before our game with Minnesota, I had chapel time with the guys, and I shared a con- the, the context, the truth of the Word of God, and shared some application. And, and uh, you know, we're in the locker room and all celebrations going off and guys are champagne spraying and, you know, everybody's excited. And there's two guys standing off to the side. I'm not going to say who they were. They're standing there and they said, Chuck, come here a minute. In the midst of all that, they said, you know what? We were just talking about that message and how convicting it was as to the things that we should be doing as believers in this environment that we're in. I had another guy call me aside. He said, Chuck, I want to share something with you. He said, man, it was so convicting what you said that as I got a base hit, now I'm running down first baseline. The whole time I'm thinking of what God spoke to me through you, through the Word of God, and I stood on first base and I asked God to forgive me for not taking the action that I know He wants me to take in my life. That is God and God alone, and it's the power of the Word of God because I'm not that sharp. I'm just not. None of us are. But it shows you the convicting power of God's Word coupled with the conviction of the Spirit of God living within the life of the believer that will not let us alone until we do what God has called us to do. But the only way we know it is we've got to be diligent students of the Word of God. And notice what it says, that you know, a person who shares the correct message refuses but avoid. Before we look at that, I want you to notice something here. In verse 15, it says, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God. The whole reason that we do what we do is so that God will be pleased with us and not man. Approved to God. Present yourselves approved to God. 
I'm going to talk about that word in a minute, present, because it'll come up in the context here. But the whole reason that we do it is because I'm not concerned whether people like me. You probably noticed that by now. I'm more concerned that God is pleased with me. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Those are the words I long to hear. Not that people like me. Not that people think I'm a great guy. Or not, you know, I, it really doesn't matter at the end of the day what people think as long as what God thinks, that's the most important thing. You know, if I'm pleasing to God, I'll guarantee you this. My wife will be happy with me, my children, my friends, my partner, my family, our customers. Uh, you know, there'll be a whole bunch of people that are pleased with me because why? Because I'm committed to live a life that's pleasing to God. And then there are going to be a whole bunch of people that hate my guts because they cannot stand the message that God has entrusted me and you to share with them. No one wants to hear they're not as good as they think they are. No one wants to hear that they're sinners separated from God on the way to hell. No one wants to hear that they're not righteous. No one wants to hear that they've fallen short. No one wants to hear that, but that's the message that we are entrusted to share with them. Why? Because it's true. Because it's truth. He says, who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. It means to divide accurately. It has to do with uh, cutting a pattern. You know, Paul was a leather maker. And what he was saying is that when you cut patterns of leather, you have to be able to put it all together so that something useful comes out of the product. So it's being able to say, hey, I can take passages of Scripture in the context and know what it is and accurately put it all together so that it makes sense to people. And you go, wow! And if you've ever noticed, when somebody teaches, man, there's Scripture coming from all over the place and it's all being put together, weaved together, and forming an overview or an overall picture, a big picture, small picture, now big picture, that it fits within, handling accurately the word of truth. And we don't have to be ashamed before God of butchering up the word of God to try to make it say something that God doesn't want it to say. We avoid, what, worldly and empty chatter because it's a waste of time. It also leads to ungodliness. And, you know, and their talk will spread like gangrene and nothing good but comes out of gangrene. The only thing good comes out of gangrene is amputation. That's it. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Men who have gone astray from the truth, and then they're claiming the resurrection has already taken place, upsetting some people like somehow they missed it. Maybe like running around saying, hey, the rapture's already happened and you missed it. What? You ever call somebody, I always like when people call and they say, man, I've been trying to call you for two days. I thought the rapture happened and you were gone and I'm still here. Well, that's what you get for being post-trib. But um, <laughs> See, now, see, that's funny to people who are diligently studying the Word of God. So the rest are going, what was that? Okay, so where are we? Besides running out of time. All right, here we go. But avoid vain babblings. That really is what it comes down to. Bottom line is this. You want to communicate a correct message? Don't give room or time to empty and meaningless chatter. Don't Just focus on Jesus and Him crucified. Focus on the truth of the Word of God. Don't get off on a tangent. And the only way you can focus on it is you have to study it, you have to know it, and then you have to be faithful to be used by God as He brings people in your life to hear the message. Second thing is this. That a good and faithful servant satisfies what I call a conforming morality. Now, a conforming morality, if you look at verses 19 through 22, it says, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now, what this means simply is, is that we are to conform to a biblical standard of behavior for all who claim to be Christians. Notice this, it starts with a relationship with God. He says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord, what well, has to do with a personal relationship? The term actually means those who call upon the Lord. Well, you know, the command through Scripture is, call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. 
The name of the Lord has to do with authority. God has given Jesus all the authority to forgive sin by the power of His death on the cross and the resurrection. Those who call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and believe in Him for the forgiveness of their sin, believe in His death, believe in His resurrection, call upon Him. Forgive me, Lord, for everything You say about me. I realize now is true. I am a sinner. On my best days, I still fall short of Your expectation of perfection. Forgive me of my sin. Call upon the name of the Lord and You shall find mercy. God will not despise those who call upon Him who are broken hearted and say, God, forgive me of my sin. He will not despise us. And as we receive Christ as our Savior, we become children of God to those who believe in His name. We have a relationship with the God who created us through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, and the power of His resurrection. He's saying this, let everyone who names the Lord or call upon the name of the Lord, what? Resist sin. You and I cannot claim to be believers and then live in a lifestyle that is not reflective of a biblical standard of morality. We can claim to be anything that we want, but the evidence is that those who call upon or name the name of the Lord who are truly born again from above by the will of God, not by the will of man or human efforts, those of us who are born again, who become new creatures, old things pass away, all things become new, to those who are transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit, regeneration in our life, Titus 3, 3-7, those of us who are truly born again of God, or children of God to those who believe in His name, are now called to live a lifestyle that is different than the lifestyle that we lived before coming to faith in Christ. The world cannot ignore us or the message God's entrusted to us when our lips and our life, our walk and our talk, the tongue of our shoe and the tongue of our mouth are going in the same direction. When we are not hypocritical in what we say we believe or claim to believe and live it out before people, they have no choice but to sit and listen. They might not like what we see, but they cannot use you and me as an excuse to reject the message of God. Before I came to faith in Christ, I used the lives of Christians as my biggest excuse not to come to faith in Christ because they were hypocritical, at least the ones who I saw coming to me trying to share with me how I need to be forgiven. And I'm thinking, if I need to be forgiven and you've already been forgiven, I don't understand because we're doing the same stuff. You need to be forgiven. Don't tell me I need to be forgiven. You need to be forgiven. Think about it. Well, that's different. What? It's, no, you know what, see, we have to resist sin. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord avoid iniquity. Abstain from wickedness. What God calls wrong is wrong. What He calls sin is sin. And there's nothing that will confuse an unbeliever more than the sin in the life of a professed Christian. Man. We'll see this as we look at it. Look in verse 22. Flee from youthful lusts. Flee from youthful lusts. The word has to do with sexual immorality. And if nothing will stand a Christian above everybody else in the world we live in, it's this. A single person who will refuse to have sexual relationships outside of marriage. Every other single friend will look at it like, what? Why? Because it's wrong before God. Sexual sin is wrong before God. Fornication, adultery, homosexuality, rape, bestiality, it's all laid out. It's wrong before God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And such were some of us. But we're no longer living that way. 
Every single person, whether you're in love or not in love, whether you're committed to each other, whether you're monogamous, that doesn't matter. If you're a Christian, you are to be in love with the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He comes first, and the Word of God says, don't do it. It is an offering pleasing to God when you abstain from sexual sin. That's why it is so bizarre to hear people talk about that they are homosexuals and Christian. You cannot pursue sexual sin and name the name of the Lord. Those who are Christians abstain from fleshly lust, flee from sexual sin. That is as ridiculous as saying we got churches of people who are, hey, I'm a Christian, but I'm an adulterer. We'll just start a church of Christian adulterers. Think how stupid that is. But that's the message the world shares with us. Hey, we'll just have a church of all Christian homosexuals. One thing that we'll have in common is that we all enjoy the sin of homosexuality and we'll base our church on that. Now see, so you understand, I'm not just picking out people who, have, who have, are living a, a sin, in, the, in the sinful life of homosexuality any more than I am single people who are having sex outside of marriage any more than I am of those who are having adulterous relationships outside of their marriage who claim to be Christian because it's all wrong. It's just wrong. Abstain from it. Flee from it. If you want to have a message that people look at and they want to understand and believe, then say, man, the reason I'm faithful to my wife is, you know, not that I'm not tempted, but God promises with the temptation a way to escape. The reason I'm, you know, I'm faithful or you should be faithful and all of us who are married should be faithful is because it's wrong to do anything otherwise. It's a sin before our God. It hurts not only our God, but it hurts our families and it hurts our friends and it hurts our testimony to the world whom we're trying to convince is in need of a Savior. Flee from sin. Listen, we need to also not only flee from sin, but I've told you many times that Christian life isn't just the things we cannot do, it's also the things we should do. And pursue what? Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Righteousness. Right living before God. Every Christian should pursue living a life that's right before God. How do we know it's right? He tells us what's right. How do we know it's wrong? He tells us what's wrong. It's beautiful. And then he reminds us of the Spirit of God living within us, of the things he's already told us that are right and wrong. Pursue right living. How do we do it? Through the Word of God. All Scripture is inspired by God. Profitable for what? Teaching that which is right. Rebuke, telling us when we're wrong. Correction, telling us how to get right. Training, telling us how to be right. Isn't that great? It was all right here. The Word of God. We're to respond and pursue righteousness, faith. The word faith is faithfulness, not the faith, because we already have faith if we've come to faith in Christ. It's faithfulness, living a life of faithfulness and trust in God and His Word. A life of love, agape love, the highest form of love God has poured within our hearts as believers, the Spirit of God, so that we can demonstrate God's love to the world around us. And the way that we demonstrate God's love is what? We put them first before us. Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus. The attitude of what? Humility. Considering other people's needs more important than your own. Agape love. Pursue a life of putting others first. Pursue a life of peace. Peace with God. And the way we have peace with God is by living a life that's right before Him. First, we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by trusting in Him. And then, as believers, we have peace with God by living a life that's right before God. You and I will not have a problem with God. You and I will never be disciplined by God for sin if we pursue a life that's right before God. We'll have peace with God. We also are to have peace with others. Peace among men. 
specifically Christians. We should work hard at as far as it is possible with you and me. We should be at peace with all believers. Sometimes that's hard to do, and you can work hard at it. And that, but you know what? But God commands us to be at peace with believers. Why? Because there's nothing that destroys the testimony of Christians more than Christians who fight with one another. Well, we've got a world out there that's lost and on the way to hell. We've got to try to learn to get along without compromising the truth of God's Word, but at the same time, we're to pursue a life of peace. And the last thing that we need to understand and recognize about a good and faithful servant is that a good and faithful servant speaks in a comforting manner to those who do not know Christ as their Savior. Now flee from youthful lust, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, verse 22, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, notice. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Now, here's where it comes in. And the Lord's bondservant, a good and faithful servant, must not be, what, quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Our, the manner by which we share with others should eliminate strife, for a gentle answer turns away wrath. Let me give you an illustration. True story. A friend of mine talked to her this week. She was having dinner with her and her husband and their agent. And as he came in, he looked at her and she had a Star of David on her necklace. And she's a Jewish woman who has come to faith in Jesus Christ as her Savior. The man looked over her and said, Oh, I can see you have an identity crisis. Now, those are the kind of accusations that bring out the flesh. The kind where you kind of go, let's get ready to rumble. Twelve rounds of biblical boxing action. You know, that, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it's like, you know, how do you respond to that? And you respond very simply. A gentle answer turns away wrath. I don't have an identity crisis. I am a Jewish woman who has come to put my faith and trust in the Savior God has promised to the world, Jesus Christ. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he rose again from the dead. I believe that God, everything God promised to, quote, my people was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I know who I am in Christ. I know in whom I've believed. And I know that he's able to guard that which I've entrusted him against the very day of God's judgment of sin. See, you, you know, we don't have to get into big arguments about it. We don't have to raise our voice. Let me tell you something. Here's what I've learned in life. The person who raises their voice is usually the person that doesn't know what they're talking about. They have to raise their voice and yell and scream because they know that they are stupid. And what they're trying to get across is stupid. They know it's stupid, but they're trying to convince you it's not. So they raise their voice. You know what? We don't have to raise our voice and yell and scream at people. I mean, how stupid is it? You know, somebody comes, you try to explain them what the Bible teaches, they don't believe, and you say, Whoa, 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 you're going to hell! That, what is that going to accomplish? That's, I mean, and, well, first of all, it's contrary to God, what God wants us to do. Don't be quarrelsome. Eliminate strife. Be kind to all people. Able to teach. If you know the Word of God, you don't have to be frustrated and, and, and raise your voice and get angry because somebody doesn't believe something that you said. Demonstrate it to them. Show them in the Word of God. Be patient. Able to teach. Even when somebody wrongs you, be patient and able to, 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 uh, to reach them. Because look, look at this. I mean, how stupid was the world that put Jesus Christ to death on the cross? And you know what Jesus said? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen followed his example when he was stoned to death for professing that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, his own personal Savior. When they stoned him to death, he looked up into heaven and said, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. 
See, we need to have that attitude and that spirit of gentleness that was found in our Lord. So you know what? People just don't understand. They don't know. And the purpose of us sharing the Word of God is because it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God, faith comes through hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And when we share the truth from the Word of God, it's the Word of God that convicts people's hearts. We need to be praying that the soil is prepared, the heart is prepared to hear the Word of God. We need to pray that God would keep the devil and his enemies away that try to pluck out the seed of God from the hearts of those who hear. My greatest concern and my greatest prayer every time that I speak somewhere is, Lord, I know you've prepared hearts to hear your truth. Now guard them from the enemy who will quickly come and try to snatch it from their hearts. They'll leave and they'll go, wow, you know what? I need to put my faith and trust in Christ. And they'll no sooner walk out the door that the devil will be whispering in their ear, that was garbage. You don't believe that. That's stupid. Man, and the battle still rages on. We need to pray that God, as as the Word of God goes out and accomplishes the purpose for which He sends it forth, that God God will guard it from the enemy who will try to pluck it from their heart. Because the message that we share is one that encourages repentance. Notice what he says. The reason that we're not quarrelsome and we're kind and we're teaching and we're patient and we're gentle and when we correct others, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil... The devil is lying to the world we live in, trying to tell the world, it doesn't matter how you live. The devil lies to the world and says, you know what, you can't believe God or trust God in His Word. And he's been doing that since the very beginning when God said, don't eat of that fruit. And the devil said, you can do anything you want to do. The devil's been lying and destroying people and that's just his business. That's what he does. The devil wants you and I to join him in hell for all of eternity. But God so loved this world that He gave us His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's God's will for man. That none would perish and that all would be saved. And the only way that you and I could be saved from the judgment of God and the wrath of God for sin is that we repent. Repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The message is a message of repentance. John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus' first sermons preached repentance. Every disciple and apostle afterwards preached repentance. Repentance is turning from sin and turning to God and falling upon Him for, your, for mercy and forgiveness through faith and trust in the death of Christ upon the cross for you and the power of His resurrection. Who do you say that Jesus is? Anything less than you are the Christ the Savior of the world, the Son of the living God, anything less than that guarantees you a spot with the devil and his demons for all of eternity. I pray that is not true of you here today. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray for anyone who's here that is not sure of their relationship with you, that God, right now, that you'd use your word to penetrate their heart, that they would put their trust and faith in the only Savior the world will ever know, the Lord Jesus Christ that they would fall upon you for mercy and forgiveness and grace, trusting that Jesus died for them even this very day, and that he rose again three days later, conquering sin and conquering death and able to offer eternal life as the Savior of the world. God, I pray for all who hear these words that they would resolve that once and for all of eternity here and now in their hearts with you. Father, forgive me for I'm a sinner. Even on my best day, I'm not perfect. God, I believe for a long time that somehow I could work my way to heaven and I know it's wrong. Forgive me for my sin. I pray that 
you would just accept me as Jesus' death on the cross, as he died for me, that you would accept his death on my behalf. Lord, I believe that he raised again from the dead and that he's alive today. And he's exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father. One day he will come again to judge the living and the dead. God, I receive him as my Savior, as the best as I know how. And I trust that your word is true. Father, and for all of us who have come to faith in you, I pray that we live a life that is so in line with what you teach that no one can ever use us as an excuse to deny your message. Lord, we thank you. We just pray that we continue to resist sin, flee from sin, and follow after and pursue righteousness and love and peace and faith. God, we just thank you for that and ask you to bless this time now in Christ's name. Amen.